My guest this week, with and without his partner Josh Weinstein, has written for such shows as Mission Hill, The Cleveland Show, Portlandia, and Disenchantment. But he's probably known best for his six seasons on one of the greatest TV series of all time, The Simpsons, two as co-executive producer. He's also an avid fan of fast food and has started a club for others like him called the Steve Ham Society and Food Discovery Club. It is a thrill to introduce Mr. Bill Oakley. Hello, it's great to be here. Thank you. Um, I was just reading that you started something called the Steam Ham Society and Food Discovery Club. Um, tell me if yes. I if I joined that, if I became a member, what do I what do I gain from that? Well, you gain access. First of all, you gain access to a worldwide community of people who are kind of interested in snacks and food and stuff. And there's a lot of kind of sharing of information. Like, did you try this new flavor of Doritos? Hey, the new soap, the new whatever is coming out at Taco Bell. Things like that. But there's additional perks. Uh, by the way, I should say, anybody who's interested in the slightest, go to steamedhamssociety.com and check it out. We have a lot of members all over the country, some overseas, and we do a lot of we do a lot of talking about food, for one. But there's other perks. There's obviously, we have stickers, we have t-shirts, we have a monthly food roundup guide that I write uh, about all sorts of different food things that people have recommended. And uh, we also have a monthly live stream. And furthermore, if, you're, if you have a lot of disposable income, Check out the higher levels where we have things like um, a person, person, one-on-one Zoom with me and you, or even at the highest level, we have a customized snack box of my favorite snacks that I will curate and send to you every quarter. So it's all about food, and it's all done in kind of like my Instagram videos, a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek way. So um, I definitely recommend anybody who's the slightest bit interested to check it out. We would love to have you. Uh, The Discord runs 24-7 and is packed with far more information, even now, just three weeks into this thing, that I could possibly imagine. Sounds great. Better than those when they send you razors in the mail once a month. Mm-hmm. Far better than that. Uh, and better than Oprah's. You know, here's the thing. is like, this is what it's like. You know, Oprah, every year Oprah does this thing where it's like her favorite thing. And she likes this certain type of caramels or whatever. And then everybody goes out and buys those caramels. You know, Oprah, God bless her, is not as qualified as me to make those judgments. So I'm going to tell people what the best caramel is what the best overseas lace chip flavor is and then we're all going to go get have you seen those videos from uh, japan and korea the 7-eleven videos where they have all those different chips and all those different other flavored uh foods i haven't seen any i mean i've seen a lot of photos and reporting but i haven't seen a lot of videos of that they're on youtube yeah they're, they're really I good check that out yeah that's, that's exactly like my kind of thing i bought this i i didn't know that this was uh Hey, all right. I have that same one in white. Oh, okay. Because I didn't know if cease and desist would be the the words that would be coming out of your mouth. But uh, I don't get any money. People who can't see this podcast, Ian is wearing a Steamed Hams t-shirt, which is in the Burger King logo. uh, And I have the same shirt. uh, And no, I mean, either Fox slash Disney has been really negligent about coming after people, or maybe they like people making their own stuff. I don't know. But uh, that's why the Steamed Ham Society, the logo actually only says SHS, so it will be Sandwich High School <laughs> if if Disney comes after us. And, and it looks kind of like a high school logo, too, so it, uh, it, that's why we have that. That's our insurance. So if you had to pick, I know this is probably you get this question a lot, just one major chain's most famous burger. If you could only eat that one, what would it be? You know, it would be, here's the thing. There's so many different answers to this. If I could only eat one thing 
for the rest of my life, it would be McDonald's regular cheeseburgers because I can eat an infinite number of them. And I, they're not the best burger out there, but there's something about them that's very appealing. And I often just get like, get like four or five of them and, uh, and I eat them for my dinner. Um, I like, but McDonald's quarter pounder deluxe, uh, with the fresh beef is actually amazing. And that's the, the one that you can get most natural all over the country. Uh, some places, you know, there's a lot of regional chains, uh, and five guys, I would probably, I think I'd say, honestly, if five guys counts as fast food, which it doesn't really. Five Guys customized with all the stuff on it, it'd probably be my choice. I actually do like the uh, deluxe that you would just say. That's my favorite. I love the McRib. Is that wrong? It is not wrong. It's probably for nostalgia's sake. This is the thing, you know, this is what I've discovered about a couple of certain uh, certain items like the McRib and the uh, Italian chicken sandwich from Burger King. They are remnants of the late 70s, early 80s fast food scene. And people have, if, there, if someone were to watch those things today, fresh, they would be laughed out of the business because they're so fake <laughs> and they're so fake and they're so weird, but people who eat them have, eat them out of nostalgia. And because they're also only available a limited time, like the ribs only once a year or less, uh, the Italian chicken sandwich only comes back like every 10 years. Um, but they're still good. They're still tasty. It's just that there are of a time where people didn't mind things being insanely artificial which they which those things are um so the taste is good it's not crazy to like it um it might be crazy to like it if you had never had it before and you were like a teenager and and, when, and you were like i love this crazy thing but um you know to each his own it, it's not, I'm not i don't criticize anyone else's fast food taste well actually you know i was i'm jewish and uh my parents wouldn't let me have that and then it was i was in my 20s when i had it for the first time uh-huh and so, and you're a fan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like it too. I like, I like it, but once a year, it's just about the right amount of time to have it. I yes. Think. I don't, I don't crave it. No, I don't crave it either. Like the Shamrock Shake, I'll have once a year as well. Mm-hmm. For me, that's once every seven or to, to 10 years. But okay. uh, I, I do, I do appreciate it that it comes back. What chicken place? Popeye's by far. Like, and I should say that I don't live in an area where we have Zaxby's or there's other places that people love so much. So uh, for me, it's Popeye's by far. Chick-fil-A doesn't even enter the conversation. I know people love it for nostalgic reasons from the South, just the way that the people from California love In-N-Out or people from Texas love Whataburger. But Popeye's has by far the best chicken and chicken sandwich, uh, I think, across the board. At least, keeping in mind, I have not tried Zaxby's or there's other places, uh, there's other smaller chains. My parents retired and they moved to South Carolina and they live near a Zaxby's. It's, it's actually really good. I've heard nothing but raves about it and I'm very eager to try it. Um, Raisin Cane's is another thing that we have that we actually just got our first one up here, um, which is just, it's all chicken fingers and it's pretty good. Like, I still wouldn't put it above Popeyes. And is there a good pizza place? Well, a fast food pizza place, you mean? Yeah, like Domino's or Pizza Hut or. Look, here's the thing about those places. They're all okay. They're all much better than they were 15 years ago. Right. Domino's, Pizza Hut, Papa John's. I don't. Uh, and then there's other smaller ones that, you, that that are more regional too. But like of those big three, I'm ha- like, I don't love Domino's. But when I get the thin crust pizza, I like it well enough, and it doesn't have that many calories, and I can eat the whole thing. Pizza Hut, um, I like fine. Little Caesars, I like fine. Papa John's, I actually like slightly better than all those places. Um, none of them are probably as good as any good local pizza place, right. but 
any of them would do in a pinch. And my pick would probably be Papa John's. My favorite is actually Papa John's because of the pepperoncinis. I like that too. And I like it when they have like the special things, the cheeseburger. I think their cheeseburger pizza was the best of all the cheeseburger pizzas because it had the pickles on it, which is, seems weird if you haven't tried it. But then when you when you eat it, you're like, this is like has a cheeseburger mouth feel and taste, and it, it was good. I've noticed um, listening and watching interviews with you that people are so territorial with their fast food. You, you'd expect to have like see bumper stickers that are like, I stand with Wendy's. Uh, they are. And well, well, by the way, Steam Cam Society, we do have our stickers, and you're supposed to put. What I forgot to mention this. You can get secret at participating places. You can get secret menu items if you're a member of the Steam Ham Society, and we've been starting that up. And it's been super fun. Anyway, yes, stickers like people are very territorial, and everybody often has their item that is their go-to item. Particularly people who like Taco Bell, which seems to have this cult that is. I mean, Taco Bell is, is good, but like I don't love it. Like other people are like, oh man, I gotta go to the Taco Bell hotel and I gotta buy this special Taco Bell sneakers and all this stuff. And like, and they wait in line to get when the Mexican pizza comes back. Like, I, I don't have that desire. I, I always like Taco Bell when I get it, but I, it doesn't make me crazy like that. There's one place that I love that I'm very nostalgic for, and that's Roy Rogers. Did you ever go there when it was open? It was the only fast food place I got to go to. It was the only food place within walking distance my entire teenage years. So I went there dozens and dozens of times, and I liked it. Um, I honestly, though, you know, I haven't had it since the 1980s, so I have no idea whether it holds up. I really used to love the Fixins Bar, where you could put that stuff on your burger, and a lot of times people, <laughs> my high school friends, would just go and, like, just eat stuff out of the Fixins Bar, like get, get onions and tomatoes and pickles and just dip them in the horseradish sauce and not not pay it, not spend any money at all. You, you make, <laughs> so, you make a salad. Make a salad. Uh-huh. Right, exactly. Uh, and I like the roast beef, too. I mean, and I think there's only, like, there's only a few Roy Rogers left, right? And they're like a New Jersey or on the turnpike or something, right? Um, no, those are gone, too. Oh, they are. Are there any left? I, I think one or two. But I, wow. I knew that I, I live in Long Island, so I, I knew that um, the one, one that was there until at least 2005, 2006 was the one across the street from Madison Square Garden. So whenever I went to Madison Square Garden, I went to Roy Rogers before. Oh, wow. And what did you get? I got, I got the burger, and then I went to the Fixins Bar. Very nice. I like that. And that's one of the things I like about Five Guys, too, is I like to have a burger with a lot of stuff on it, you know? Yeah. And um, that's kind of hard for fast food places to do because if they wrap them up with the lettuce and tomato and the onion, it gets all gross and, and drippy. And so, like, having a customized burger with a lot of stuff on it is my favorite type of thing. Uh, I went to Fuddruckers in Arizona and that's very, it's kind of similar. You can put. Yeah, I love, I used to love Fuddruckers um, for exactly that same reason. And I like the burgers a lot too, but the last four or five times I've been to the ones near me, they suck. They're like mm-hmm. dirty and like the food is not very good. Like a lot of these spaces have kind of are time capsules of the eighties or nineties food scene. And the rest of the universe has moved on without them. Fuddruckers was a in 1993, I couldn't imagine a better place. Now I can. Okay. If we ever get to Long Island, there's this place in Massapequa called All American. It's really good, and the prices are the same as in like this from the 60s. So it's like a dollar a dollar sixty eight for a double double, which is two burgers. That's incredible! Yeah. Wow. Have you ever been to Jollibee? No, and I'm dying to go. We're actually getting one here in Portland in 2024, they said. And uh, I have never had it, but I keep hearing great things about it. Have you? I've been. There's one in um, Times Square, and there's one in Queens. 
and it's really good. The, oh wow! And did you? What do you get? Spaghetti? Spaghetti with hot dog, and I tried everything. The burgers aren't that good, but the spaghetti uh, with the hot dog and the chicken was, were really good. Man, I'm dying to try that place. I have heard nothing but raves about it for years, and I, I feel that I missed out when I was in LA because I never went there. I, I was. I went to last year. I went to Portland, and um, oh yeah, I went to. I tried to go to every baseball park, so I went to Seattle, and then. Um, I had to try Voodoo Donuts because I've seen it on TV so much. Uh-huh. And I wanted to see where they made the Goonies, so we went to Astoria as well. Oh, wow. That, did you try anything else in Portland? Oh, we have a lot of great food scene here. Um, no, we just drove through it and, I st- and stopped at at, uh, at Voodoo. Uh-huh. What, what did you get at Voodoo Donuts? <laughs> Honestly, I get, I get the, the one that looks like the Homer Simpson donut with pink and the sprinkles. <laughs> Those are good. Those are good. And there are like I think the thing about Voodoo Donuts is that the donuts look amazing, but they're not really that special in terms of the taste. They could be, you could have gotten, there was that you could get the Safeway. Uh, but it, the creativity behind them is what makes it noteworthy. Okay. And you wouldn't have been able to, to have all this fun if it wasn't for a little television show called The Simpsons. Correct. So you're from rural Maryland. Did you watch a lot of TV growing up? Yes. And this is one of those only three TV channels as well. Uh, it's hard to remember a day before cable TV or VCRs, but like there wasn't that, you know, there was three TV channels and that was it. And, and a lot of times so there wasn't anything on that kids would like during the day. So, uh, but I did, I did watch a lot of TV uh, when it was available. What were your favorite uh, comedy shows when you, when you were younger or growing up? Uh, I love the Brady Bunch. Uh, as for, and those were the new shows. Like I love the Brady Bunch. I loved all those shows um, that were for, there weren't that many shows that really were for kids. The like Brady Bunch and Partridge Family were kind of hit. And, uh, but I loved all the old reruns that I watched. I, I Love Lucy. Uh, every episode, I'm sure, I saw three or four times at least. Uh, Dick Van Dyke Show. Uh, my very favorite show of all, which was hard to find, was Green Acres. And mm. Green Acres was such a well-written, such a surreal show. Uh, and we later found out we took a, asked people in the Simpsons writers' room of uh, the ten of the twelve writers that had been their favorite show growing up, um, and it, it was a it definitely an informative moment. We've all found that out. Yeah, I've interviewed over 120 uh, writers, and Green Acres and the Dick Van Dyke Show are usually two shows that are always mentioned. That's you know they were so, like Dick Van Dyke is such a great and like also because it's about comedy writers and it makes the comedy writing life look a lot more fun than it is. Um, uh, but also Dick Van Dyke is so charismatic and his whole, uh, and Laura is great. So like, but Green Acres, man, that's a whole different thing. Like, it's hard to believe that show survived as long as it did because it's so surreal and it's so different than, um, most other sitcoms of that era. Uh, but you know, the creativity and still, I still hold up, but now they have them on, uh, MeTV, which is one of those cable services that plays old shows. And I've been watching them over and over and it's a mixed bag. Some of them are not that great, but some of them are absolutely terrific and like a rival Good sim- rival Good Simpsons episodes in terms of like this is a town full of lunatics. When you got a little bit older, uh, teenager, did you what, did you still watch a lot of TV or? Yeah, and it kind of changed into things like Saturday Night Live and David Letterman. Um, I used to stay up in high school to watch David. I can't believe I stayed up that late. <laughs> uh, in, in retrospect, but like you know, David Letterman's here at twelve thirty after Carson uh, every night, and I stayed up and watched that. And that both Saturday Night Live and David Letterman. And the National Lampoon magazine from that era really informed my whole sense of humor, too. 
And I know you met your partner, Josh, when you guys were 14 years old. Yeah, in ninth grade. Um, and we had real similar senses of humor, and there weren't that many other people like us, so we kind of gravitated to each other. And we did a lot of stuff together uh, in high school, and then later in college, and then later throughout our career. Now, when I when you guys were like hanging out when you were 14 and 15, you just were doing the typical hanging out stuff, or were you like writing sketches? We gradually started to do publications. We both started out working for the school newspaper. Um, and the school newspaper had um, some comedy, some like one of the pages was kind of like a features page that had like cartoons and movie reviews and crap. So we both worked on that a lot. And then we decided to start our own humor magazine, which was incredibly fun and the highlight of my high school years. Uh, and we published a humor magazine in our high school that was pretty good and easily rivaled most college humor magazines at the time. And uh, so that was, yeah, that was kind of what we did. We were definitely into that whole scene. What was it called? It was called the Alban Antic. And it was, um, the school was St. Albans, so it was Alban Antic. Uh, originally it was called Happy Hour, but the school did not like the drinking reference <laughs> in the title. So we had to change it. Uh, you went to Harvard. When you were yes. a freshman, Conan was a senior? Yes. Did you submit your freshman year? Yes, I was able to, like, when you get to, uh, I, the main reason I wanted to go to Harvard was to get on the Harvard Lampoon. The Harvard Lampoon, for people who aren't familiar with it, is a humor magazine published at Harvard University. It's the oldest humor magazine in the world now, uh, around 1876. Um, and that is where National Lampoon came from. As I said, National Lampoon was formative uh for me in those years and uh it was an offshoot of the harvard lampoon so i really wanted to be on the harvard lampoon and of course when you get to harvard you find out you can't you, you can't just walk in and work on anything it's typical of harvard uh, you have there's a competition there's a competition to get on not only the lampoon but everything the newspaper the literary magazine whatever the swim team and so so uh i was fortunate enough to because i had done so many cartoons and comic strips already throughout my high school years. I was pretty good and they needed some. So I was able to get on first semester freshman year. Uh, the only other freshman who got on with me was David Cohen, who has now gone on to great success as the co-creator of Futurama. Um, so anyway, when we got on, Conan was the president, yes. Was Steve Young there? Yep, Steve Young got on at the same time as us. And Dan McGrath was a year younger? Uh, he was a year, two years older. He two was in Conan's old. class. It's a very fun place, or at least it was. I think things have changed. Things go back and forth depending on the tenor of the school. Like Harvard itself is an extremely boring, uptight place. And Lampoon is one of the few places that is not like that. But it is subject to the whims of Harvard, too. So things like there's always crackdowns on like various types of things that the Lampoon might want to do. Um, anyway, it's basically a club. It's a club. And we published a magazine five times a year. The magazine was not very good, and it's only distributed at the Harvard on the Harvard campus. But you know, it's kind of like a humor club, you know. And so, by the time you graduate, you spend a lot of time in what effectively amounts to like a writer's room, uh, but with uh, you know, with lots of parties and stuff too, as well. So, uh, you know, I really loved it. Well, I have a lot of Simpsons questions, but I wanted to say that I actually watched Sunday Best. Oh wow! Because that was the show. That Josh and I worked on for three weeks. We moved to LA, uh, worked on that show. It got canceled after three weeks, and then we were unemployed <laughs> for, for a long time. Because they advertised it, they were going to say Saturday Night Live's best sketch. That was one of the things that was going to be in the show. The best sketch in the previous night, Saturday Night Live. 
And instead of a few minutes with Andy Rooney, a few minutes with Harry Shearer. Theoretically, it was a really clever show, and it was very much like Talk Soup. You know, Talk Soup did this. A couple other shows stole that format later on. Um, but part of what the problem was that, was that Sunday Best could not get the rights to the other things that were on other networks for the most part. Um, and it seemed like it was going to be a good show, but it also had that unfortunate uh, time slot of being on opposite 60 minutes during the entirety of the Gulf War. So um, it like it just wasn't the right thing at the right time. And um, But the staff was was pretty impeccable. And the first episode of The Simpsons that you wrote was Marge Gets a Job. Yeah, that was Conan's idea. And we had gotten an assignment to, to write a freelance episode. People, they had liked our spec script that we wrote. And we uh, wrote, that was Conan's idea. We wrote a script. It was, I think it was fairly well received. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't even close to perfect. They rewrote it heavily, but I think it was good enough that they later decided that they would give us a shot and, and hire us. And then the rest is history, so to speak. When you do a Treehouse episode, how much time does it take to come up with a nickname for the opening credits? Oh, it takes a long time to come up with a good one. Like, uh, Josh and I finally just stuck to the same one. We finally came up with a good one and just used it over and over like uh, like many of the other producers did. Uh, but, yeah, because we had a nice... It, we had a nice pair that went well together, which was the late Bill Oakley and the estate of Josh Weinstein. Mm-hmm. Um, and like that, we decided once we hit on that, we didn't want to change it. But yeah, it takes a long time, unnecessarily long time. With um, Lisa versus Malibu Stacy, how many times have you have somebody said to you, Smithers Computer, with Mr. Burns? <laughs> People talk about that all the time. They always talk about the, oh my God, she's got a new hat. That thing happens all the time. Those are the two things that people mention all the time from that episode. And I'd like to thank you for teaching me about the Coriolis effect. Yes, although apparently it's it, it's so minor that it doesn't really work. <laughs> like you have to be like in a lab laboratory conditions. It doesn't really work the way that we depicted it on the show. But I'm glad that <laughs> we're able to misinform you a little bit about it. Right. And was was Michael Fay? Was he the reason that? You wrote that episode? Yeah, that was the whole thing. That was the that was the genesis of the idea, was the whole Singapore thing, yes. It was about him. He was definitely the inspiration for it. Of course, the Steamed Ham Society and all the stuff with the Steamed Hams comes out of 22 short films about Springfield. Yes. And what's funny is I work in Queens, and a lot of my kids weren't born in America, and a lot of them don't watch The Simpsons, and but played the Steamed Hams, and they knew it by heart. But didn't know it was from the wow. Simpsons. But didn't know it was from the Simpsons. Really? Because the thing is, it's been like it had its own life on the internet. Like you know, that sh- I never heard anything about that sketch for for like the twenty years that it was uh, that it vanished from after it was broadcast. So then in twenty eighteen, it suddenly became the internet meme of the year. Um, and I'm glad that it was my thing that I wrote that became the meme of the year. But still, the fact that it um, became it became so well known to a generation of younger people through that is uh, remarkable. My favorite line in that in that sketch is I mean, I love the scene pan bed too with the lying and the escalation is when Skinner comes into his kitchen and everything and the food is burned and he looks over and he sees the Krusty Burger and he goes perhaps, I'm not going to say it right, but perhaps I can make, go buy some fast food and have it, it take place of my real cooking. Right, right. 
because that's so like a tripe that's from a television show. And, it, and he says it like a, he's the first person to have that idea. Oh, yeah. The whole thing is a corny setup that had been that setup, I'm sure, had been around since the days of radio or probably since vaudeville, you know, uh, where the boss is coming to dinner and stuff gets messed up. You know, how many episodes of I Love Lucy, Dick and Dyke, and, and hundreds of other shows had that premise? That was the whole reason that, right. that I wanted to do. I wanted to take a, a, a shop board premise and then drop Skinner and Chalmers into it so I could just do the lie thing, which you would never do on any other show. You said that Superintendent Chalmers is your favorite character to write. Now, originally, he was supposed to be the one sane man in the town. Yeah, I mean, he's not like... That is why I love writing for Superintendent Chalmers, because he is... It's very much like Green Acres, because in Green Acres, the character of Oliver Wendell Douglas, the star of the show, is the one sane man in Hooterville. Like, including his own wife, there's not a single other sane person, except maybe Sam Drucker, occasionally, in the whole universe. In the Simpsons universe, it's very similar... Superintendent Chalmers is the only one who realizes that everyone else is somehow screwed up. Um, but he's decided that he knows how to live with it because he doesn't press too hard. You know, like he asks one question and then he usually gives up. Like when, when someone is lying or whatever, he's just like, why he, that's why he lives, as opposed to Frank Grimes, who couldn't let it rest. Frank Grimes had a similar attitude, but he had a, he had a slightly more caustic personality and he just couldn't let it let, he couldn't let it rest. And he paid the ultimate price. Right. And also, when Homer leaves Springfield, it also seems that everybody is more like a Frank Grimes than a Superintendent Chalmers. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, it, it, certainly that is the case for the episodes I've seen. I don't know how many episodes he has gone here left Springfield with. The real world, I mean, when they encounter the real world, it's always a little bit of a it's a shock, and that's why Frank Grimes is the way it is, because he's a real-world character reacting to Homer like a sane person would, which is like, how can this guy get away with this? <laughs> how can, uh, and, and the universe didn't, didn't like that. No, in your, in your uh, first show, Marge Gets a Job, there was a little bit of a kerfuffle about a Tourette's joke that, that was in the original script. Yeah, that was not an art. Like, I should say, like I said, that was heavily rewritten, that script, right. and that was not... Uh, you know I that. don't recall. I don't think we put that in, but I think there was a joke about. Yeah, there was a joke about Tourette syndrome, and then I think that what happened was the show got letters from kids who really had it, and it was not as funny. And they agreed that, that you know that it was kind of it wasn't in the best taste, and so they replaced it with another joke, uh, which totally fine. I think that was a good. You know, I think that was a good Tourette syndrome was a punchline for a lot of people from the eighties into the nineties, and then I think people got a little more sympathetic to the victims and decide and realize that it wasn't it wasn't great fodder for jokes uh, is there been was there any time in when you were showrunner or when you were writing that there was a major problem with any with with any other group about anything that was on the simpsons not that i was a showrunner but i mean there was always something there was there's always some outcry, like the New Orleans episode when they did the streetcar named Marge and had that song about how New Orleans sucks. <laughs> New Orleans City Council was all up in arms and was going to pass some sort of resolution condemning the Simpsons. I know that happened later when they went to Brazil as well. Mm. Um, and But, you know, people are always trying to latch themselves on the Simpsons for publicity's sake. And like myself, as I do with my Steam Hand mm. Society. Uh, but like uh, those places, 
during the time that I was there, and the time that I was running the show, there were not that many outcries. I think now countries are like, please come to us. Yeah, that didn't happen that much back then. They still, we had only gone, they'd only gone abroad once. I think I was, I think they'd only gone abroad once or twice. Australia, I mean, I know Homer went to India for the, the Quickie Mart thing, but like uh, Australia was one of the few overseas trips they'd taken at that point, I think. Bartels and Soul was a great episode that you, that you show, Rad. Yeah, that was, a, it came out great. It was Josh and me, Josh did the lion's share of the work on that. And it was all Greg Daniels' idea because he really did that. Uh, Greg Daniels, we were talking about ideas for the story conference, and it turned out that J- Greg had actually done that thing to people where he bought their soul for $5 and then later checked up the price when, <laughs> when they wanted it back. And we were like, that's a perfect story for this series. And uh, it all kind of came together pretty quickly. The Inagata Davida scene at the church is hysterical. That, I feel like that was a different song at first. I, I can't remember what it was, but there was, I think it was actually another song that actually worked even slightly better. Oh. But I can't remember what it was at the moment. There was one that we couldn't get the rights to. When we went remote, everything was like king size Homer. I wore a I wore a moo yeah. for the first day. <laughs> that is a uh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of true to life stuff in that episode. As someone who works at home, and it, it, when the mail comes, it's a big deal. You know, when your hat is done in the dryer, it's a big deal, that kind of thing. And the big uh, garbage bag full of popcorn they give him at the movie yeah. theater, they let him make him <laughs> But I want to see Honka from Honka if you're horny. Yes. Give me my dignity. I'm only here to see Honka if you're horny in peace. Exactly. One of my favorite episodes is uh, Bart on the Road. And for some reason, that. It's not up there on most people's lists, but I just love the fact of the four of the of the four of them on a road trip. Yeah, I think that was part of the whole conception of that was just like let's get the part of it was let's get part of driver's license and the ability to drive a car. That's the whole premise unto itself. And then we were like, well, where is it going to go? And then that kind of like we, we wove a story together, kind of spring break type road trip story together uh, throughout that one. But I do like that. There's a lot of good stuff in that episode, and. It, um, a lot of it was written by Richard Pell. And my favorite part is um, the uh, Andy Williams. Second. Mine too. Oh my God. I was just thinking about that the other day and how that thing, when it says on the, on the marquee, he's still got it. Look Magazine. You really got to know the joke is that Look Magazine went out of business in like 1972. And like, it's, if you know that, the joke is so funny. And that's the kind of thing that people, obviously, the most of the viewers probably weren't aware of that. But uh, over time, perhaps they figured it out or heard that. And it really makes that joke. <laughs> and Nelson, the best is Nelson goes, I didn't think he was going to do Moon River, but then third encore. <laughs> he yeah. made him stay for the third that encore. Enti- that was entirely George Meyer. I, I think we were going to end the scene just kind of with Nelson looking happy, but that line just popped out of George Meyer's mouth, and we were like, that is gold going right in. Well, <laughs> I watched The Simpsons so much that my daughter. When she was in daycare, she was like three years old, and this girl was walking and she fell, and my daughter goes, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and the, the the person at daycare was like, "Can I speak to you for a second? After I went, <laughs> after I went to pick her up, and they're like, "I think you're watching too much Simpsons in front of your daughter." That's hilarious. She she used to call Marge Mama Mommy Simpson. Uh, then I realized, yeah, I think she's too young to watch this. 
But now she loves she loves The Simpsons. There's an episode the day the violence die. I want to know um, if you knew about this. Um, since you're a National Lampoon fan, I had uh, Brian McConaughey on, and he had a he had a little bit in in the in um, the National Lampoon called Kitten Caboodle, which was like sort of like itchy and scratchy. I remember I worked Josh and I worked with Brian McConaughey on a TV show in 1989, uh, and it was he was great. Like I love Brian McConaughey, I love his sense of humor. And we've actually, not only did we work with him then, but I think we've worked with him on a couple other things. And we stay in touch periodically as well. Um, and yes, Kitten Caboodle is just like Itchy and Scratch. It's the same joke. Uh, but his was like 15 years earlier. Right. And what I heard is that that was a, the writer of that episode, was it Schwarzwalder? Yes. Uh, was was giving a little, little needle to Matt Groening, who said that he had never heard of it, but yet also said that he was a big fan of National Lampoon. Uh, it, well, I don't know that if that episode is... The, uh, that episode may not be the exact thing. I know that that show also... Bitchy and Scratchy also came from Herman and... I think Herman and Catnip is what I always heard it was based on, is that Herman and Catnip was a real cartoon that was excessively violent. Um, but Kit and Caboodle is the, definitely the joke. Is like It's the same joke as Bitchy and Scratchy in a brilliant way. Um, in that episode, I wouldn't necessarily say that Schwarzwalder, he probably wasn't even really aware of all that stuff mm, okay. uh, when he wrote it. So I can't really say that that's what his goal was, but it's possible. I know, because uh, Brian McConaughey thought that the, that episode was about him, and he loved it. He loved it, and he took, when he talked to Al Jean, he said, listen, I've done Saturday Night Live, I've done SCTV, let me get the hat trick. Let me get the hat trick. Can I write a Simpsons? And he wrote one in 2002. Oh, wow. I, you know, I don't think I've even seen the Simpsons he wrote, but yeah, he's one of the funniest guys I've ever lived. He's, I mean, he's an amazing uh, person. He's very nice, too. He's very nice. He basically answered... I, some people tell me, you know, just call the people on the phone if you find their phone number, and I did, and he, and he called me back. I, called, I left a message on an answering machine, and he called me back. He is uh, also the other thing is that he's such a calm. He seems like a really nice, friendly old, uh, like high school science teacher. Mm. He's got a really kindly demeanor, but he's also but the stuff that comes out of his brain is so twisted. Right. I talked to Steve Young about Hurricane Nettie. That was a George Meyer idea. Yes. The idea of That's having exactly right. and the idea of having Ned's parents be uh, beatniks is hysterical. I think that didn't that appear in one in an earlier episode. I feel like it, it, there was some joke about it in an episode that maybe Josh and I wrote, where that was the first like there was some quick cut to it or whatever. But yeah, right. I think you like, said damn beatniks. Yeah, lousy beatniks. That's but I can't remember what. It, I don't. I'm suddenly forgetting what, where it appeared. I thought it appeared before that episode, but yes, that's it's a really good thing about the psychodrama of when Ned Flanders is like. And it's funny that. Even though nothing, you know, things have changed on The Simpsons, where Bart and I'm sorry, Bart, Homer and Marge, they 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 change when they meet over and over again. It didn't stay with, you know, 1974, but Flanders' parents are still beatniks because they were in an episode about two three years ago and they were beatniks. <laughs> that's wild. Well, that makes him like 85 years old then, probably, right? <laughs> so, like, that's like, I'm glad that's very consistent. 
Man, his parents should be like a hundred. Yeah. We you were there when they did the Bobo episode? Yes. Yes. So yeah, so Mr. Burns' younger brother is George Burns. I think that's a joke, yes. <laughs> yeah. That's a great joke. Cause at the time George Burns was ninety seven years old. Yeah, yeah. Itchy Scratchy and Poochie is another great episode that you worked on. That was a fun episode to do. It was very, very self-referential. I mean, it's a tribute to the fact that we were totally left alone and didn't have to give, didn't have to take notes from the network or anyone really that we got away with that. So it's such a self-indulgent episode, but people seem to like it. So when a lot of these things like Poochie and, and so forth have taken on a life of their own over the years that they didn't have at the time. Uh, and I think that episode has gotten far more popular over the past 25 years than it was when it first broadcast. When, when I first saw it, I thought, since I watched a lot of TV growing up, um, I first saw it as a parody of Happy Days. How you could you even say like a fourth Fonzarelli. How uh, Roy moved into the Simpsons is like how Fonzie had to move in with the Cunninghams. It was, it, yeah, I think that's true. And it was, but it was, that happened all the time on TV shows back then. Right. Characters would suddenly vanish. Like Happy Days, you know, Richie's older brother, Chuck, just vanished. Right. And so like it was a common it was a common trait. And but even more importantly, it was a common trait to try to sex up the show, an aging show by bringing in young characters. Yes. You know, like they did on the Brady Bunch when they brought in Cousin Oliver in the last season. But it happened on dozens of shows uh, when people thought it was getting tired and they'd always try to bring in someone young and and outrageous. Uh, Family Ties did that. Head of the Head of the Class is always the show that made me laugh because Welcome back, Cotter. He's supposed to be the dumbest kids in the school, and they graduated in four years. And head of the class were the smartest kids in school, and they took them five years to get out of high school. <laughs> so, but then there was a second group of kids as well that they mixed in with the original people. Oh, wow. I don't even think I, I don't know that I ever saw that shit, but I know what you're talking about. No, no, you shouldn't. You were in college. <laughs> and I, I told Al Jean when I, when I had him on. I'm one of the people who I was 12 years old when The Simpsons came on the air, and I still watch it every week. I have not missed a week since the show has been on the air. Oh wow! I am the Lou Gehrig of watching The Simpsons. <laughs> Congratulations! Hopefully, the same thing doesn't happen to me. Yeah, no, but you're the luckiest man in the world, I guess, as he was considering himself. Yeah, I said Norm Macdonald had a great boot. Obviously, I'm being sar- sarcastic. Next month, uh-huh. in a year, you'll be here playing the Indians, and I will be under the earth, <laughs> which is a great bit. Um, I liked another one, My Sister, My Sitter. Is a Yeah. Because I, I like when Lisa um, is thinking that Dr. Hibbard's going to say, my diagnosis, bad babysitting. And when they finally get to Dr. Hibber, he goes, oh, a little nasty scrape and fall. Brought on by bad babysitting. Yeah, yeah. I like that episode because it's such a simple concept uh, that is fairly believable. Um, and it was during that, it was harder and harder to get you know realistic, somewhat relatable family stories, even by season eight. Um, and so when we came up with that, we were like, this seems like a, a perfect premise for an episode. And the emergency cysterectomy. Uh-huh. That's, that's a great joke. That's a funny like the one with the guys with the, the party sub, the six foot Italian party sub. Swimming, swimming in vinegar. 
Although that would be great if a guy just showed up to my house with a six foot party sub swimming in vinegar. <laughs> and you you, you uh, mentioned Homer's Enemy, which is a classic, which is usually in the top ten of episodes now um, by Simpsons fans. That was a, you know that was a fun episode to do. Again, it was a, the fact that we got to do it was merely because nobody was paying any attention and giving us any notes. Um, it had a, it was it was dark and it got darker and I think the whole premise again was what if a guy a realistic guy was thrust into the Simpsons universe and had to deal with Homer um, and I'm glad that it you know at the time again nobody really liked it like a lot of these things these episodes from these this era people they just kind of went into oblivion because they were broadcast and then you know they were soundly beat by people watching Mad About You. And they, they vanished, but you know, I guess we had the last laugh because people are still watching these episodes 25 years later and mad about you is is mostly forgotten. But what do they have in what do they have in common? Hank Azaria. What was he on that? I don't think I even realized that. He, he was their he dog was he was their dog walker. <laughs> I don't well, uh, if Hank is listening to this, Hank, I'm sorry I didn't know that you were on Mad About You. He'd be play the dog walker and he'd be like, Hey there, Mo. The Murray was the dog. I think, Hey there, Murray. Hey there, hi there, ho there. He would just, just do that voice and then get the dog and walk <laughs> off. But yeah, he was on both shows. So, oh, wow. So he was hedging his bets. Homer's Phobia is a great episode. And I know that. Another one. So the censor didn't, yeah, the censor really didn't like that one. And you were met with some resistance by the censor. Yes. And we, I mean, the, the story, as it goes, you know, that we used to. The only notes we ever had to take were from the censor, and the sense we were not trying to like push boundaries of taste, you know. So generally, the notes were just very short. It was like a, you get a fax, and it would be a typewritten page with two sentences on it that says, "Please use discretion when depicting Homer's naked rear end. Please delete or substitute for the word scumbag." That would be it, right? Um, and so those were the notes, and we always would just ignore them because quite often. The, the rewrite during the rewrites or the cuts or whatever that those things would be eliminated anyway so our policy was generally to ignore the censor notes when we sent over the first draft of the of homer's phobia it didn't come back two lines it came back two or three completely full pages of notes about every single thing having to do with john being gay and anything having to do with homosexuality period and, and uh like i don't know 40 or 50 notes and then at the end, it's like the entire content and substance of this episode is not suitable for broadcast. <laughs> and so we were like, oh, shit. Well, what are we going to do? We're going to ignore the censor notes if we always do. <laughs> and we just completely ignored every single note. And then nine months later, when the animation came back from Korea, the president of Fox had been fired and replaced. And there was a new censor. And they sent the censor note back that just said acceptable for broadcast. <laughs> and that was the end. So it, it, we just... It, it was a funny story in that we just completely ignored them and then nothing happened. You know, the, the world changed around us rather than us having to change to conform to the world. I, I know you tweet original, the original versions of episodes. Did you ever tweet the, uh, the thing you got from the censors? I don't think we still have it. I don't know that Josh, Josh has a much better archive of this stuff than I do. Um, and I know that if we had, if we had it, he would have already probably put it on Twitter. I don't think we kept those. I wonder if like steel workers are not gay. Would <laughs> be like, <"We're> not. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that they didn't like that sequence at all either. Um, the last episode was the last episode you worked on was the spin-off showcase, correct? No, it was Lisa the Simpson actually, uh, and the New York episode right before that. 
Oh, I love this. Oh, fresh cockalash. Yes, exactly. That that episode um, was the premiere of season nine, and we worked. And then there was an episode later in season nine. At least the Simpsons. Also, we consulted on season nine, but we didn't really have much to do with it. Oh, that's when the Simpsons predicted nine eleven because it was a nine dollar bus ride, and the twin towers were in the background. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> we. Not only we are, some people say we predicted that, other people say we are CIA operatives or Skull and Bones operatives who are telling, who are sending a coded message through the Simpsons to our agents on to which day to attack um, for the false flag operation. So there's a lot of theories about that, uh, including that all of us people from the Harvard Lampoon were somehow connected to Skull and Bones uh, and therefore the CIA in planning this false flag attack. So, and on, none of that is true. Okay, $9. I was I was getting scared because nine dollars is chosen because it's a comically cheap fare to go anywhere, um, and then the and the eleven just happened to be a silhouette of the New York skyline, which had the twin towers in it. You know, it's like the it, it, it's it was not a prediction. It, it was a, it was a simple graphic that made complete sense in the context of the show. <laughs> yeah, I want to buy that book that I saw that about how. It, the myths of the Simpsons predicting the future. That one was, I think, the dumbest one of of, of them all because it's, it's nine dollars and a silhouette of the New York City skyline. Right, right. Uh, but people love to make this. There's a whole book, by the way. There is a whole book that is very good. I did a lot of interviews for this book actually uh, about all the things the Simpsons allegedly predicted that I highly recommend that you check out. Right. I want to definitely want to buy that. And because um, it is one of them was that there were like four guys that are up for the the, yeah, the Nobel Prize. Yes. I don't think I was around for that one, but it was pretty impressive that they, they got that right. But are those very big names in that field? I think so. I know, I was not there, so but I believe that they just probably did some research by calling up people, you know, at <laughs> physics departments or whatever it was. Uh, who, who who are your people that could be nominated for a Nobel Prize? In, right, in, right, right, exactly. I predicted it. All right, so um, the, just one the question about the spinoff showcase. Which one of the of the three would you think Fox would have actually put on as a, as a for real? Even though they're all you know a joke. Uh, uh, I think they probably would have put on Chief Wiggum PI. That's what I, I think. Was, it was pretty good. I like. I really like Chief Wiggum PI. I think it would be. Fun. He's funny. Skinner is a good sidekick. I love the New Orleans setting. I love Big Daddy as a as a villain. Like, I really I find that segment very entertaining on its own, regardless of the fact that it's a spinoff of The Simpsons. And yeah, I love that uh, Principal Skinner knows absolutely nothing about the city he's supposed to be from. Right, he's from New Orleans. He's born on the mean streets of New Orleans. There's some sort of parade, but uh, it's not a big deal. Yeah, it reminds me of that. Beverly Hills Bunts when they took Dennis Franz's character from Hill Street Blues and then they put him in Beverly Hills. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I think that's one of the inspirations. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for doing this, Mr. Oakley. I think I will become a member of the Steamed Ham Society. I don't, they don't have to attach a chain of uh, to me, right? Like when Homer... <laughs> no, not yet. That's not, that is not one of the things we're working on right now. Maybe in the future. Okay. But uh, you will. I, I, if you do, I, it will be appreciated, and you'll be far more informed about the state of 
fast food and snack food than you are now. I promise. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you.